Well, it is a, uh, a big joy to be able to gather and worship no matter what the circumstances. We're especially grateful today. As uh, many of you know, we have to be out of the gym once a year while they refinish the floors there. And so it gives us opportunity to come and enjoy this property the Lord's provided for us. And while it can come with some uh, temporary inconveniences, it does have benefits like the smell of barbecue while you listen to a sermon. Um, We might see if we can install one of those in the back of the gym, you know, from here on out. Uh, Just uh, make you pay better attention. I don't know. But this is, uh, this is a special occasion, unique occasion while we're out here to be able to uh, not only kind of recapture a little understanding of how the Lord has worked to bring us to this place, but also to really, I think, think about the bigger picture, uh, to uh, maybe reflect a little bit more on why we do what we do. Why do we go through all of the difficulties and struggles uh, that are involved with purchasing property and building buildings and, and all of these things. Uh, there are people who question whether or not those are even worthy endeavors for churches. And really, shouldn't we be out in the uh, highways and byways and feeding the hungry and uh, doing those kinds of good deeds with the funds that we have? Shouldn't we be more engaged in trying to lift up Uh, the downcast out of poverty and oppression and shouldn't we be involved with maybe uh, righting some of the social wrongs, some of the ills that are plaguing society? Shouldn't that be more of where our focus and even our dollars go whenever we are gathering and operating and doing things together as a church? Really, it it kind of begs the, the bigger question of what is the overall focus, or we would use a word that's uh, sort of become more common in organizations. What is the mission? What are we really all about? It's an important question for us to ask. What is our mission? Uh, A lot of people like to speak about missions, plural, speaking about all the ways that we might engage the community around us and all of those things. And those are important discussions to have. But before you have a discussion of missions, plural, you really have to have a very necessary discussion of mission, singular. What is the overall goal? What is the focus? It's that understanding and that definition which then defines the missions plural it defines the methodology it defines all of the activity and the uh, uh, all of the uh, uh, investments and everything that we make all of that is defined by what we're really called to do in the first place it's not a foreign concept in our culture and society In fact, if you are involved with a large organization, you probably are already familiar with the idea of defining the mission or the mission statement as it's often spoken of in strategic planning. Companies all across America spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars every year trying to clarify their mission. And then once they clarify it, They spend about as much money trying to constantly communicate it to their constituency, to their employees, to all of those who are 
uh, we might say, stakeholders in the organization. But when it comes to the church, what is our mission? What are we trying to accomplish? Companies ask that basic question. Corporations ask that basic question because they realize that your level of effectiveness will largely mirror the clarity to the answer you give for that question. What is your mission? And to define that, we have to think about First of all, a lot of confusion that goes on that around the church, around Christianity. And we have to think about it in light of the Scripture. There are some people who would define the mission of the church like this. Our job is to get the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. That certainly sounds noble, Except when you begin to ask exactly what people mean by some of the terminology, the whole gospel, the whole church, or whatever you might mean, you realize that even those terms are packaged in their minds with all kinds of assumptions and all kinds of baggage. That statement, by the way, came directly out of a worldwide conference on global evangelism. It was the Luzane Conference in 1974 on world evangelism, which gave that statement, the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And their endeavor was to get as many churches as possible to embrace that mission statement to guide everything that they're doing. In fact, it continues to impact people. You still hear that kind of language in works, in books, magazines, articles, blog posts that are published about the church. In fact, in 2010, a group convened a conference uh, along the same lines of the Lusane Conference to further define this slogan and to clarify what is happening in missions around the world. And papers were delivered on what we should think about the whole gospel or the whole church and the whole world. For example, the whole world, as defined in 2010 at this conference, the whole world is not defined simply as the physical world, the human race, including nations and language and and religions, but it grows beyond that, according to one of these papers, to encompass the world of violence, the world of poverty, the world of injustice, the world of globalization in the public square. And so the church, if the church is to be the church, if the church is to fulfill its mission of the whole gospel to the whole world, it has to include efforts that would, in an ongoing way, address economic injustice and global poverty and the negative effects of globalization and the threat of nuclear disaster and the dangers of terrorism and the stoking of ethnic and religious Division and the challenges of population growth in huge urban centers around the world, the destruction of the natural environment and human-generated climate change, the scourge of HIV-AIDS, the cultures of violence that pervade society, both domestic and international, and on and on and on. 
That's the whole world according to modern commentators, if you will, on the purpose of the church. One of these papers concluded with this, quote, any theology of mission must take such global realities into account in discerning what it means to address the whole gospel to the whole world. When we talk about the world, we cannot think numerically about all the people who live in the world. We must think contextually about all that's in the world that impacts the lives of individuals, social structures that that shape them, the physical environment upon which they depend. End quote. That's big. I mean, that's everything. But it begs the question, framed, I think, well by Stephen Neal, who says this, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. In other words... When we speak of mission, if the something that we're trying to do is everything, then we're going to end up doing nothing. Or as they speak in terms of strategic planning, we will experience mission drift. No effective company would ever be effective if they define their mission as everything. And we certainly don't rejoice in all of the ills that society suffers. We don't rejoice in divisiveness. We don't rejoice in social and racial inequality. We don't rejoice in the suffering of poverty or even the suffering of those who lack health care. We don't rejoice in all of the Uh, denied opportunities that take place in oppressed societies. We don't rejoice in terrorism or pollution or disease or any of that stuff. None of that stuff brings us joy. It's not as if we're not concerned about any of those things. But we have to ask ourselves a basic question. When it comes to the church, what is our mission? What is our job Is that what we're supposed to be doing? And how really, after all, do we know what we're supposed to be doing? How does the church really sort out its mission? Does it just sort of define it week in and week out, year in and year out, based on whatever the headlines are that are confronting us in society? Where do we get our idea of mission? You know, confusion on this issue has led to a lot of futility through the years. A lot of negative impact. If you know much about the history of Christianity in America, then you're familiar with the progressive movement. And when I use that term, I'm not talking about progressives in the 2021 sense. I'm talking about progressives as a historical movement that were headlined by the names of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and the turn of the 20th century, the progressive era that ushered in a number of economic uh, 
initiatives and even constitutional amendments and culminated in what many people think was the death of progressivism in the prohibition movement. But it had a long history. It actually arose primarily out of the Christian church. It was mostly out of mainline denominations in large and prominent churches throughout America that some of the biggest names of progressivism arose. And they tackled issues such as women's suffrage and even issues such as the abuse of corporations on everything from child labor laws to the destruction of the environment. It led, as a matter of fact, to many wonderful and good things. Uh, The establishment of the national park system was a direct result of that. The increase in rights among women, the uh, protection of children, all of those things came out of the progressive era, and we are grateful for all of that. But at the same time, that the progressive movement, the progressive era was advancing, it came with a parallel decline in the church at large. The church in America began to suffer in its attendance and enthusiasm as well as its doctrinal fidelity. It suffered in in almost inverse fashion with the rise of progressivism. Why is that? Why was there a movement within American Christianity uh, during the late 19th and early 20th century to embrace modernism, to reject fundamentals of the Christian faith, to abandon the doctrines that had founded so many of the schools and churches and institutions in America? Why is it that attendance began to wane and immorality began to rise? Why is it that churches were being overturned by what is at the best a shell of Christianity and at the worst a completely different religion? Why is it that the church suffered so much during the rise of the progressive era? Well, I think it has a lot to do with just confusion over mission. Christians, prominent Christians, celebrated Christians, and many of those around them began to imagine that their mission as a church was to help people build orphanages, meet medical needs, dig wells, find clean drinking water, all those kinds of things that were ills and plagues in society became the mission of the church. While at the same time, the focal mission was clouded out. As I said, none of those things were bad. None of us rejoice to see the ills of society. But we have to ask ourselves the question, is that what you and I as a congregation, as a church, are called to focus on? If we ask the question, what is the mission of the church? The scripture gives a very clear answer. 
And it's important that you and I understand it. Understand clearly what it says and what it doesn't say. So that we can clear up any confusion when it comes to the idea of mission. What are we to be about? Well, to do that this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 28 in one of the most familiar and fundamental passages in all of Scripture. It's become known to us as the Great Commission, or we might call it the Great Commandment. It's recorded in one way or another in all four Gospels, but Matthew's version is perhaps the most well-known because it's the most succinct And yet still sometimes it's overlooked and misunderstood. Let me read to you Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in some ways, this is a very challenging passage. If for no other reason, it's one of the most familiar passages for any of us who have been Christians for any amount of time. It's so familiar that we have a tendency to not really listen, examine, or think about what it says, and yet it clearly defines for us what we are to be on a daily, weekly, annual, really our entire existence, what we're to be as the church. And Matthew in in particular punctuates the importance of this commission this commandment by placing it at the very final point of his entire gospel it's not the final moment of jesus's life on earth in fact uh, we know that jesus called his disciples as it says here to galilee where he instructed them to meet him on a mountain this was after the resurrection and yet this isn't the final moment of his life we know that he would Uh, be with them on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem when he finally ascended back into heaven after being with them 40 days after the resurrection. So he will have uh, at least uh, another week or two with them before he finally ascends into heaven. In fact, we even know that during that period of time, he will reiterate to them this same great commission. Luke records for us uh, when this happened in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. Luke twenty four forty nine. he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of the Holy Spirit upon you. Stay 
in this city until you're clothed with power from on high. Again, in the book of Acts, Luke records the same kind of words to us. You'll receive power from the Holy Spirit when He's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. So we get the sense that this great commission that was given with these sort of memorable, momentous words in Matthew 28... It wasn't just a one-time exhortation. It appears to be something that became a repeated theme of Christ over His 40-day period with them after the resurrection, constantly telling them, remember this, remember this. You must go into all nations and make disciples teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, preaching the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I think it's safe to say, Jesus didn't want His disciples to misunderstand the mission. He didn't want them to forget the mission. He wanted them to have no mistake about what they were to be about. They weren't trying to overthrow the oppressive regime of the Roman government. They weren't trying to undo all the plight of poverty around them. They weren't trying to establish medical care throughout the Roman Empire. They weren't trying to do all of those things. They were given a clear command on the mountaintop with with repeated emphasis throughout Jesus' days of a singular, all-important purpose as a body of believers. And we, looking at Matthew 28, we can take note, I think, of four components of this that clarify our task. Four components that clarify for us the mission of the church. The first one, we could simply define as a call for every believer, a call for every believer. We don't need to spend a great deal of time here, but it's helpful to see when Matthew speaks about those, it's helpful to see those that he initially gave the commandment to. He gives this to them in Galilee, up on the mountain. And while we're not told the names of everyone who attended, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that there were about 500 people who were a part of this crowd. These were the ones who were called to initially hear this command and hear this mission. This was his band of laborers that he was calling to the task. The 11 disciples went with him to the mountain. As I said, there were 500 others who gathered with him there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, these believers had obeyed the Lord's instruction to meet Him in Galilee. They had obeyed Him to go up on the mountain. When they came there, they clearly saw the resurrected Lord. They were well aware that they had seen Him crucified in Jerusalem. They were well aware that He had been laid in the grave. They were well aware that He was there for three days. 
and that he has now conquered death. They knew all of those things. And so it only makes sense that knowing all of those things, whenever they, whenever they laid their eyes on him on the mountain, some of them probably having seen him now for the first time since the resurrection, it makes sense that they would worship him. What else would you do if you saw a resurrected man? If you knew someone had conquered death, what else would you do but worship him, right? And so it makes sense that they would worship him in that way. But Matthew then adds to that this interesting note that some of them doubted. Some of them doubted. This was not what you might call the elite powerful force of the church of unwavering saints who stride on in perfection from victory to victory in their faith. This was the whole congregation of people both the strong and the weak, who bring to Jesus not only their expressions of love, but they bring to Jesus even some of their doubts. This was an imperfect group, in other words. These were people who, I think it would be safe to say, struggled at times in their faith. They struggled at times in their Christian walk. They weren't a perfect group And yet, it was this group that Jesus called together to give this commission. This was the group that he gave the command. Not the daring and valiant superhuman uh, missionaries that you might imagine from your biographies you read. This was not a fearless or particularly determined group of people. And yet, this was the group that Jesus gave this mission to. It was the entirety of the believing community at that time. And it encompassed every stripe of Christian. Every strand, every level. Those who had conquered their doubts and those who still had doubts remaining. And yet, they all gathered to worship Christ. And this imperfect group were the ones that Lord gave this commission to. I'm so grateful that Matthew included this, this note of hesitancy, because it reassures me that those whom the Lord intends to use in this mission are not the perfect, they're not the undaunted, they're not the always triumphant, It will be those who are sometimes hesitant, sometimes even doubtful. They're still commanded to go wherever the Lord commands them to go and to worship Him and to proclaim Him because in spite of all their imperfections, they love Him. They love Him and they know that he's the resurrected Savior. Well, secondly, we can also note that Jesus gives us credentials, not just a call that includes everyone, but credentials that are good everywhere. 
credentials that are good everywhere. This is what he says in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is a pretty comprehensive statement. All authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, that is about anywhere, everywhere you could think of, I, I would imagine. It is over and above any other authority that you will ever encounter. It easily and by definition supersedes any authority you'll find on earth. It supersedes and overrules any other authority. And no matter where you go, no matter what people think about you or who you are, what Jesus wants you to know is you have been authorized to speak. You have been given authority to speak. You've been given license, endorsement, whatever you want to call it. You don't need more documentation because all authority in heaven and on earth stands behind you wherever you go. And this note of authority, no doubt, is intended to stand in contrast to the hesitation that Matthew's already noted in the passage. They may be hesitant, they may be doubtful, but Jesus wants to assure them that who he is and what he sends them to do and what they're instructed to say is committed to them with absolute authority. And so there should be no hesitation. See, Jesus understood one of the biggest barriers for you and I fulfilling our mission would be our struggle with uncertainty. Uncertainty about whether or not we should be speaking. Uncertainty about whether or not it's our place. Uncertainty about whether or not we even have the right. Whether we have the credentials, whether we have the authority. We're not uncertain about whether Jesus has commanded us to do it, but we are at times uncertain about whether those we're speaking to will approve. But Jesus is telling you, you're not looking for their approval. You're not looking for their authority. You're not looking for their authorization. You don't need anyone's approval because all authority He grants us. He has given you prior written consent. It's like a kid in grade school. You have a permanent hall pass. You can go everywhere. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? You can say, well, I've been given authority to do it by the king of heaven and earth. Now, this is not obviously an endorsement to speak unwisely. It's not a call to be untactful or ungracious. We're called, of course, in Scripture to make our words um, um, wise and seasoned with salt, to speak in due season, knowing how we ought to answer someone, as Paul sa- as Peter says, excuse me, walking in wisdom toward outsiders, as Paul says. But to say that we are to speak with wisdom is not to say that we should give in to the fear of approval. We have approval. We've been granted permission to speak. 
Because we have been given it by the one who has all authority. So our permission and our approval doesn't come from those who hear us. It comes from the one who sent us. The best timing, the best environment will be issues of discernment and judgment. But there's no reason to not be deliberate, intentional, premeditated, calculated, however you want to say it. There's no reason not to have a clear understanding of what your mission is as you engage the world around you. Because you have a mandate and you have been authorized to speak in every place. Thirdly, we can note the, excuse me, the components of this mission that help us to clarify or uh, the command, if you want to call it the command or the components that define the task. And this is the real issue at hand. Jesus says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now some of you know this, but when you read your English Bible and the verbs that are listed there, go, make, baptize, teach, all of them are finite or we might say definitive verbs in the English language, but in the original, in the Greek, it's not that way. There's only one verb. And everything around it is what we might call a helping verb or in, in uh, grammatical terms, we would call it a participle. That is to say that there's only one central command which is then sort of clarified with some helping verbs around it. And the main verb, the only verb that Jesus gives to us here is mathetusate, which is basically the word make disciples. That is the mandate. Go and make disciples. That's the commandment. That's, com- that's the commission that defines everything that we do. And every other dependent verb, every other participle around it simply helps us to understand the process of how that main verb is carried out. We're making disciples, which involves going and baptizing and teaching. This is the real issue. If we, if we correctly define our mission, if we correctly understand our calling, then it is going to pave the way for us to be effective at it. If we're a pancake house and we put something on the wall like we make the best pancakes in town, but then we start trying to make burgers and sell produce and repair automobiles and all those other things, then we're unlikely to keep being the best pancake house in town. If we are a financial services institution and we print on our cards that we provide investment advice and service to clients, helping them protect and grow their capital to meet their long-term financial goals... And then suddenly we try to become at the same time a fitness gym or a travel agency or a package delivery service and all of those things, then we fail to be the best option for people when it comes to financial services because we have 
attempted to be too many things at the same time. Well, for a church, our mission is clear. Produce disciples. Make disciples. Generate disciples. How? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching everything Jesus commands. So whatever we may be doing, it must be focused on this. This must be its primary purpose. And to the extent that our focus becomes battling nuclear proliferation or addressing terrorism or trying to stem the tide of, of, uh, uh, of global economic poverty or population growth or whatever it might be, to the extent that we begin to worry about those things, we lose our focus on being disciple makers. Dave Doran, in his excellent book, the, For the Sake of His Name, he writes this, that in fulfilling this mission, we need to consider two important questions. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how are disciples of Jesus made? And he answers the question with a number of contrasts. He says, It's certainly true that becoming Christ's disciple occurs at a decisive point in time and through a decision to receive Jesus. But one of the sad evidences of a defective and unbiblical mission strategy has been the tendency to be satisfied with evangelistic decisions that yield no lasting fruit or transformation in the lives of those who supposedly received Jesus Christ. End quote. In other words, a disciple-making mission is not a punctiliar single moment in time. It is a commitment to a process. And in case there's any doubt... There are several places in Scripture where Jesus defines this. John 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. So our goal, in other words, is to produce people who continue in the word of God. It's not to reduce our mission to a transaction, the offer of some few facts about the gospel and a response through a particular prayer or commitment. The goal is not to reduce our mission to a transaction, but rather to a transformation, an ongoing, lifelong process of transformation. We're called to make disciples, which Jesus says involves going, which implies at the very least, something other than a constant inward focus on the part of the church. He doesn't say how far we are supposed to go. We're clearly understood that we're not to stay where we are. We have to be involved in some sort of activity. We can't be indifferent. We're always pushing outward, outward from the relationships that are familiar to us, outward from the routines that are familiar to us, outward beyond our normal priorities, outward from our places of comfort. That's the implication. We can't be making new disciples if all we know are established disciples. It ought to be self-evident. 
Secondly, Jesus says we're baptizing, which implies faith and repentance. Baptism is the public profession of how Christ has impacted your life, and it implies repentance, and it implies faith in Christ. In fact, Peter, preaching the first evangelistic sermon of the church in the book of Acts, ends that sermon by saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Luke's version of the Great Commission clarifies this commitment of your life, repentance, we should be preaching, he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So this this command to make disciples partly through baptism implies a call of transformation and repentance in people's lives. And then thirdly, we're to be teaching all that Jesus commanded. This is the aim of making mature, obedient disciples. It means that among all the activities in which we engage, the most central, the most vital, the most long-term enterprise that should be in our focus is the establishing of thoroughly obedient Christians. In biblical terms, we call that a church. A gathering of people who are committed to discipleship in obeying all that Christ commanded. So in terms of our mission and our outreach, what that means is that our focus can't turn aside to any number of other noble causes, meaningful issues, social responsibility. We may feel, as I said, compelled by all kinds of tragedies around us, by all kinds of suffering around us, victimization of people, lack of affordable housing, lack of job opportunities, lack of job training. There are all kinds of things that tug at our heart and bombard us from all media outlets. But as a body, the Lord has given us a singular focus the production or the making of disciples. In terms of our outreach, that means that whatever our efforts are, even if they incorporate, if you might want to say, the temporal means of handing someone a a cup of cold water, of paying a, a light bill from time to time, of helping them through some sort of job loss, helping them along the way in their education, whatever it might be, when we engage in any of those sort of social goods, handing out clothing, handing out meals, when we do that, all of it is with the clear call and the clear goal of establishing a life that is fully compliant with Christ fully obedient to Christ, teaching them to obey everything that He has commanded. That's our mission. 
And by the way, it is rounded out with a fourth component that helps us to understand it. In verse 20, we do it with a confidence that never fails. A confidence that never fails. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He's preparing us for the long haul. He knows it's not going to be an overnight success. He knows that it's going to be met with obstacles, with delays, with frustrations, with trials, with persecutions. But what he's doing is he's bolstering our, pro, our, our, our confidence with promises of his presence, which are intended to give you confidence in this mission. You see that a few places in Scripture when Jesus gives a challenging task, he promises to be there with you, giving you the confidence to move forward in it. When Jesus gave the command for the church to discipline unrepentant believers to deal with sin in the body, he tells us where two or three are gathered, behold, I am there in your midst. He wanted us to know of his presence because he knows it would be a difficult task. He assures us that he'll be there endorsing and empowering us. Not only in the task of discipline, but also in the task of evangelism. He tells the apostles, Luke 24, 49, Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in this city until you receive power from on high. That, of course, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says we'll be clothed using the imagery of this draping over us, this totality, this completeness. We will receive power from the Holy Spirit. The power to convict those whom God is calling. The power to change them by the word that is proclaimed. The power to bring about effective change in their hearts. All of that by the Holy Spirit. And so we have confidence because of these promises of His presence and His power, we can go out boldly, moving past the hesitations, the doubts, and the fears, knowing we have all the authority we need, we have all the credentials we could ever ask for. We call people to follow Christ, to be His disciple, to stay with him till the very end teaching them to obey all that he's commanded that's what we're about that's why we gather every week that's why we have Sunday schools and discipleship classes that's why we have small groups that meet during the week that's why we build places like a building to gather so that we can come together and have the proclamation of God's word so that we can fulfill the main purpose that God has left to us on this earth while we're here to go and make disciples. I pray the Lord's grace that we would never lose sight of that mission all of our days. It goes far beyond building beautiful buildings. It goes to the very heart of what the Lord has commanded us to do. 
Well, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then Randy is going to come up and give us some instructions on the rest of the afternoon. Father, we're grateful for this reminder, thankful for the clear commission that you've given to us, the clear commandment from Scripture. We need to be reminded. We need to be emboldened beyond our hesitancies and doubts. We need to be we need to be in endorsed or reminded of the endorsement in the authority and the authority you've given us. Because Lord, we remain frail and weak, hesitant and even disobedient. But you've given us a purpose and a calling. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand fast to the task. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.